And again, Jesus entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let him down on the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned uh, thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you do this? Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, he asks, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man this is the first use Jesus uses here in Mark's gospel of what will become his, his favorite self-designation, that title, the Son of Man, that he has power on earth to forgive sins. He then looked at the paralytic and said, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that they all were amazed and glorified God together, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is a super familiar story, probably to many of you, but there are people in this story that, that I don't want to miss really their, their emotion and their experience in it, because sometimes when we read a story, especially a story that just takes up a, a little portion of scripture like this, it's easy just to see this as print on a page and not a life that's deeply impacted. So what I want to do together is slow down and feel this a bit, but it's not just the people I want you to see. There's really a message in this story that I think we'd be foolish to overlook, and then there is undoubtedly an invitation in this story that you and I also need to consider. So that's the three lenses we'll kind of look at this story through. The first is his healing, and then the second will be the outrage, and then finally the invitation. So let's begin, just slow down to consider this healing, his healing. It tells you here that Jesus is re-entering Capernaum, and this city becomes the base of operations for Jesus' ministry to use as a hub and go out from the, from the region in Galilee, from that one little city, a humble fishing uh, village, to go out from there into different areas in the region. This becomes the hub, and if you've ever been to Israel, or if you haven't yet, I'll just tell you, this is an amazing archaeological site still today, uh, right on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee with black volcanoes rock all over in this city that made up the old homes, these simple, humble, one-room dwellings. And even there's the, uh, there's the remnants of a synagogue. And underneath the synagogue that was built by crusaders, like four centuries after Jesus, underneath it, under the foundation, they've dug it up and have realized that it sat on top of the old synagogue where Jesus would perform some of the miracles that we've already even read about in Mark chapter one. They even have found what they believe to be Peter's mother's house, which we've also uh, read a little bit about where Jesus went into that home and healed her. 
So an amazing place that still stands today, at least the ruins of it does, a simple, humble fishing village. And remember that this is the village that Jesus was in, healing individuals. It wasn't that long ago in chapter one, late unto the night. Remember, the whole village gathered to him. But Jesus, remember, woke up early the next morning and went off to pray. And after praying, he felt redirected and he departed. Remember, he left. And when he departed, we observed that Jesus was human enough both to pray and human enough to have limitations, to have limits, where he knew that he would not meet every need, but he would instead follow the direction that his father gave him. When Jesus honored those limitations, it left a trail of disappointed people in his wake who had shown up the next morning. Remember, the surrounding villages had all come together, and when the disciples found him, they said, they're all here because they've heard what you did just yesterday teaching and healing, and and, and they're here for you. And Jesus said, but the Father has told me that it's time to depart. You see, when Jesus said, let's go, he essentially was saying no to real people and real needs, but he seemingly was okay with that. Jesus didn't live under the pressure of potential. Instead, Jesus lived in the freedom of his calling. And there's a difference. He always had the capacity to do more. And yet at the end of his life in John's gospel, it says that Jesus said he did all that the father had given him to do. And yet he never went to Africa or into Asia. There were people who weren't healed. And yet he was confident. I've done everything that the father has given me to do, even though there were needs in a sense that were left unmet because Jesus lived out calling rather than under potential. Now, Matthew implies to us That Jesus, after that time where he had prayed and then departed, that what he did is he went to the eastern shores of the Galilee, which is mostly Gentile territory, where Matthew logs for us an interaction he has with this demon-possessed guy and his friend, who's also demon-possessed, who lived in the caves. And you remember the story, Jesus drove the demons into the pigs and off the cliff into the sea, a story that we'll actually get to later in Mark's gospel, because Mark doesn't seem as concerned about some of the chronology as maybe some of the other gospel writers. But as Jesus now re-enters, remember, he left a crowd of people wanting to interact with him. Jesus now re-enters Capernaum, and it makes sense now that he's immediately surrounded by crowds of people. That they spot him, and news spreads quickly that the rabbi, that young healer, he's returned. And Mark tells us that, that Jesus is in the house. And we assume it's the only house that's been mentioned so far in Mark's gospel. And that's Peter's mother-in-law's house that Jesus enters into. And our attention then shifts from Jesus entering the city, sitting in the house, the house being overcrowded now with people because they're so excited at their chance to finally be with Jesus. Our attention then shifts to a handful of friends who are racing through the now empty city streets. It makes sense both that that these four guys are carrying their young friend to be with Jesus, believing that he could be healed because Jesus has already healed others in that city. Picture it with me. Jesus will soon address uh, the one who's laying there paralyzed. He'll soon address him as son. So we should probably picture a teenage boy. It's his friends who seem to be carrying him. So so maybe it's safe for us to assume that this is a group of teenagers, in fact, And maybe I'd even go so far as to say it probably was because they show no concern at all for destruction of personal property in the story. And so I feel confident it was teenage boys who were there present in that day. These guys show up late to the party because they're moving a lot slower than everybody else was when word got out. They hear the news and and they they have to rush to get their friend before rushing to carry their friend back to Jesus. Picture what this would have looked like. 
They're hustling down the now empty stone streets, each one holding the corner of, of this humble fabric mat that's stuffed with straw. They called it his bed. Their immobile friend is nervously laying there. He's latched on to the side, hanging on for dear life. But with each step, he bounces with enthusiasm, believing that he's headed towards hope again. He's headed towards a life that he's longed for. I don't think that they're dragging their friend, kicking and screaming. I think his eyes are wide with anticipation as well. For years, he's watched the world move while remaining stuck on this mat. His friends would run and play. They'd fish and explore while he watched from the open doorway of his family home, just watching life happen. Those same friends are now growing up and beginning careers and they're saving money for a dowry that's going to make it possible for them to start their own life, to start their own family, all while he remains frozen in time, stuck on his mat. It's really more than just this guy's body that's paralyzed. His whole life is frozen, unable to move forward or progress at all. And you can almost hear his young friends laughing as, as they round the final bend towards the crowd towards the house, toward Jesus, toward hope, toward healing. As one commentator put it, he said, every step they took might have given hope inside another breath. They were determined, we're going to get our friend to Jesus, that miracle-working rabbi. Before that miracle-working rabbi would have a second chance to disappear in the night without anyone knowing where we'd come maybe in the morning, but he'd already have left like he did last time he was here. No, we're going to get him there no matter what it takes. Nothing could stop them. Not even an overly crowded house, not even people pushing back at them as they tried to enter through the doorway. Instead, then they climbed the stairs that would have gone up alongside the house to get up onto the roof that people would use as a little outdoor patio to enjoy a breeze coming off the Sea of Galilee. But they, instead of enjoying the breeze, they start to peel the layers of the roof back. There's branches and mud and clay, and Luke even tells us there's tiles there. This would have taken some work to get it open. Picture the scene inside the home, though. That's them on top, ripping it apart. What if you're inside the house with Jesus? You're crammed together. We assume that Jesus re-entered Capernaum probably from, from the ports, taking a boat down, and that when he entered, we assume it's probably at night because as word trickles out into the community, we think we've seen Jesus. Everybody meets him where he's already arrested, already seated inside the house. By the time they get there, the room is filling quickly. It's standing room only. It's humid in Galilee already if you've ever been there. But man, it's even more humid when, when you're crushed together, pressed together in a room. It's COVID's worst nightmare. Uh, pressed together in a room where you, the humidity that's present in the room is more because you're breathing someone else's lung juice when you're crammed together so tightly. I know it is gross, but it's true. It's like running around in the summer with a mask on. It's an amazing feeling. Listen, it's overcrowded. And, and, and this lantern-lit room that you're seeing, these little flickering lamps that are, that are resting on the walls, that, that they're providing simple, subtle lights to listen to Jesus teach. You probably could have heard a pin drop inside that room because everyone had pressed in so determined to hear Jesus and hang on his every word. And after there's a little bit of commotion at the door, the noise is subsided and it's quiet again until... The sound of some creaking, the creaking of the roof support beams above you. 
You'd look up perplexed, but your eyes were greeted with with a puff of debris that that marked the place that each foot had stepped above you. And you're watching the footprints until your eyes have had enough of that debris that's coming down in that dimly lit room. And now you hear the noises of someone taking their staff and banging it against the roof until until it ends up poking right through the ceiling, allowing a, a blast of fresh air and simultaneously a really unwelcomed interruption in the master teacher's message. Now the room inside, I would assume, has erupted with a lot of volume and probably a lot of frustration with it, some anger. Who are these people and what are you doing? But there's at least one person in the room that I'm confident when we read of his reaction that he doesn't seem put out at all by this interruption. You you just picture Jesus almost smiling and chuckling as he as he now sees chunks and sections of the roof being ripped apart. And then slowly above the crowd inside that room enters this nervous, frail young man on a humble cloth and straw mat. It'd feel awkward enough to be lowered into a room knowing I'm just sitting here until they can see me and I'm the center of attention in every way. But the awkwardness was quickly replaced with a barrage of probably new unfortunate emotions as the crowd who was yet to see what's being lowered down, they begin to, to share their disgruntled comments about how dare you? What do you think you're doing? Who do you people think you are? What are you trying to do? Why are you interrupting? The room would have become very silent very quickly once again when at eye level reached that mat and they saw the frail body of a young man who they knew had had a very hard life. Everyone in the room became silent again. But then every eye turned back towards the rabbi, Jesus. What would the healer do? Every eye looked away from the boy and back towards Jesus. The four friends on the roof, I assume, at this point are the only ones who are neither silent nor still because they believed if we can just get our friend to Jesus and they worked hard to get him there, they're celebrating the fact that they believe something great is going to happen for him. So the embrace for them, the celebration has probably already begun as Jesus looks up their direction and then back at this helpless boy. Look towards Jesus in the the story here. Because Jesus seems to immediately assume that this is not the devil causing some interruption to something meaningful. It was instead, he believed, seemingly, that it was the father dropping an opportunity in his lap. Jesus was seemingly neither flustered nor angered. Instead, he almost seems fascinated and and to marvel even at their faith. I was reminded of a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week. Here's what he said. If you don't know who he is, he's a pastor who lived in Germany through the Second World War. He said, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by preoccupied with our own more important tasks. It's a strange fact that Christians, even ministers, frequently consider their work so very important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they're doing God a service in this, but actually they're disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. They're disdaining the moments where God drops an opportunity into their lap. Jesus looked up in the story and it says he saw their faith. But when he looked down, he saw this young man's need. When he looked around is what's shocking. What he saw was outrage. 
It's not just the healing, it's the outrage that I want you to see here. The outrage that some felt in response to Jesus' comments that he makes here. Because Jesus seemingly makes this irrelevant statement. I mean, think about it. He's looking at a paralyzed guy. There's no hiding it. Everyone knows what the issue is. And he looks at him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's kind of odd. The four friends who brought him to Jesus, they brought him for a physical healing, not for like absolution of sins. That's not what they were after. For them even, they probably looked a little confused. You almost look at the story and go, it feels insensitive to the young man whose thin legs are motionless for Jesus to look his direction and say, your sins are forgiven you. You almost wonder, is he mocking him by acting like he doesn't even have a real issue that needs help or assistance or healing? It almost leaves you scratching your head. For the young paralyzed man, we we can only guess what he thought in this moment. Was he confused or, or maybe even a little offended? Was he hurt or just embarrassed? Or was he thrilled and relieved that Jesus had just said, your sins are forgiven you? However, there's no guesswork involved in what the religious leaders thought who were present. They were outraged, it tells us. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. You're thinking, who are you to forgive sins? For only God alone can do that. It was an accusation that they made of blasphemy, but their accusation quickly turns into an affirmation of Jesus' deity. No one can do that but God himself. Only God can say that true. And and how can he prove forgiveness? Or how could he prove that he's God unless we see real proof of that? Well, true also. So then Jesus asks, verse 9, which is easier then to say to the paralyzed man? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins He then looks at the paralytic and says, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. You see, the miraculous healing here proved this man's forgiveness, but it also proved Jesus' deity, his ability to have the the power and the authority of heaven to forgive sins, to confirm his right to speak for God. Jesus tells the man here, arise, take up your bed and walk. It's a visible showing of heaven's power to heal. And it was convincing for those in the room that Jesus also had heaven's authority to address the sin in this man's life. the, The healing of the paralytic undoubtedly proves Jesus' power, but it more importantly was his statement about Jesus' identity. This is not just another healing. What Jesus does and says in this unique little story, this little vignette, It's showing us who Jesus is, that he's the one alone who can forgive sins. This is a super important moment in the life of Jesus. It's why this is recorded in three of the four Gospels. John alone doesn't record this story because the story does show that Jesus has more than just authority given from heaven to heal a body, but that he has authority from heaven to forgive sins. Hey, when you think about it, even us in the 21st century, Jesus' question here is a bit perplexing. It's a peculiar question even for us to try to answer. Which is easier? Think about this, really. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, it's much easier. It's cheaper to look at someone and be like, "Uh, I know you brought me here to heal you, but your sins are forgiven and there's no way to see it. But think of it. What's really easier to do? For Jesus, it would take a word for this man to be healed, but it would take a cross for him to be forgiven. 
which is easier is, is a question that, that by the gospel's end opens up and shows us that what we initially thought was easier was far more costly to Jesus. It would cost him his very life. Now, here's a, a question for you. In the story, does Jesus dis, just dismiss this man's sin on a whim? Was it like uh, he looks at him and just goes, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Well, well not at all. This was a down payment. This was a good faith, earnest deposit on a future full costly payment that Jesus will make for sin. This is the shadow of the cross casts over top this moment where Jesus is communicating where he's headed and what he'll be doing, where he's promising that he's going to go through with it. Think about this. They, they thought that Jesus blasphemously usurped the order and prerogative that God the Father had set in place that only a priest could pronounce someone forgiven and only after a sacrifice was made on their behalf. But Jesus doesn't remove the, the Father's order or prerogative at all. Instead, he appeases it with his own body on the cross. That's what this moment is telling us. That's what this moment is promising us. We know this, even a perfect physical healing is never permanent. This paralyzed man, he, he had a deeper need, a longer lasting need that was present and needing attention. And Jesus addresses that need. Remember, he led with that seemingly irrelevant statement, your sins are forgiven you. Maybe a part of that, maybe a part of Jesus doing that is, is that Jesus is highlighting a connection that existed in the minds of people in this culture between sin and sickness. That they believe that, that sickness was often rooted in, in a sinful, destructive choice that someone made. That, that they would assume that this man's paralysis, his, his muscle failure, was because of a byproduct and a manifestation of a moral failure at work in his life. Remember, it's Jesus approached by those people who said of the young man or the man who was born blind. They said, who sinned him or his parents? You remember, Jesus responded and said, neither but that the, the power of God could be displayed, that, that's why this had happened. So then God could show his power. And so Jesus stepped in and healed him and told him, may your sight be received. And it was, and it was an amazing moment in time, not linked to sin. To some though, this man's disability was viewed as an exposure of his own unrighteousness. So kind of like what Jesus had done for the leper, remember that. Jesus healed the leper and then told him, now go to the priest because the priest could pronounce him clean, which would allow him to be reintroduced into society, into the community that accept him back. Almost in the same way here, Jesus will heal this guy, but by pronouncing him forgiven, then, then the reason in some of their minds that this guy was sick was also removed so he could re-enter society and culture and be accepted as a, a full-fledged citizen and not just someone who the gods or, or God himself had judged, they thought. Listen, what it tells you, though, is that the shame that this young man carried may have been more of a burden to bear than even the physical suffering that his paralysis has caused. Because Jesus is here addressing something that the culture thought and something that the culture would have looked at him, this young man, and blamed him for. Or maybe when Jesus led with this seemingly irrelevant statement, your sins are forgiven you, maybe a part of that is showing the man that he had a bigger need than what he may have viewed in that moment as his most pressing need. 
I think the harsh reality for all of us is that the main problem of every life is not our suffering. It's our sin. Because our suffering can come and go. But our sin remains. And in the end, we find ourselves praying more often than any other prayer, Jesus, save me from myself. Then we even find ourselves praying, save me from this circumstance. Because we realize that as circumstances come and go and suffering comes and sets in and then leaves again, that sin is the ultimate enemy of each of our lives that's so very destructive. And so Jesus pronounces, son, your sins are forgiven you. And when he did, they who were present were outraged. They were offended. How could you make a claim like this? But can I tell you honestly, there's a part of us that if we think through what Jesus is actually saying here, it, we can find ourselves also outraged and offended. Because think of what he's implying. By back, bypassing the young paralyzed uh, individual, by, by bypassing what he would have defined himself as his own greatest need, I just need to walk again. By Jesus doing that, it was as if Jesus completely overlooked the biggest hurdle that this young man had to happiness. The biggest hurdle he had in his life, he believed to life or to a future or to all that he felt that he was missing out on, to all that he was dreaming about. Jesus, it seems as if he completely overlooked it. And it was because Jesus saw things completely different from the way that this young man did. Jesus believed his greatest need was forgiveness, not to walk or to run or to leap. The things that, that, that he probably assumed would make him happy that he had hoped for, that he had dreamt about. Those are things, though, that wouldn't make him happy any more than, than freedom, than a career, than a relationship, than a marriage, than sex or a family, than that home or, or their title or more wealth or some security or just a little respect or someone's admiration or any other thing that we can chase after. This young man had set his sights on, if I could just walk, if only I could do that, then everything would be all right. He probably convinced himself I'd never be unhappy again. I'd never even complain again. Everything in my life would finally just be right. It would finally fall into place if only, if only, if only I could walk again. All of his hope was anchored in this one thing that he had to have and Jesus gently interrupted that moment to say, my child, you're mistaken. Author Timothy Keller, he said it this way. He says, Jesus says to the man, when I heal your body, if that's all I do, you'll feel you'll never be unhappy again. But wait two months, four months. The euphoria won't last because the roots of discontent of the human heart go deep. The roots of discontent in the human heart go deep. And I would argue that the only way for our discontent to be healed is that it has to be exposed and then uprooted to be very, uh, to be removed by its very roots. You see, it's quite possible that for us, and some of us have realized this in life experience, that worse than never reaching our goals may be when you reach them in moments only to realize in that moment that it was more of an empty savior than it was just a simple goal to achieve. And we probably wouldn't use those terms, would we? 
Our real problem, our our deepest need, and even our gravest danger is that we seem pre-wired to build our identity and to search for happiness outside of Jesus in these hollow, empty shells. What we do is we crush our spouse under the weight of our own expectation that they be the one to make us happy. It's you as a young person. Your hope is to get into that school. And you, you fear that if you get denied, that you lose even your sense of self because you don't know who you are without that. And you're afraid of what life might look like being denied that. It's your career that takes an unhealthy shape and, and space in your life because it's more than a job. It's now how you identify yourself and, and, and your source of significance in the world. It's when my home is no longer a place for rest or restoration because instead it's become this place that I just strategically stage a pristine, fictitious life in for others to look on and admire from the outside, assuming that we've got it so put together over here. It's when my car is no longer just a primary means of of transportation. Instead, it becomes the thing that shields my insecurity from others because I look and feel significant when I'm behind the wheel of a kind of car that looks like that. It's when we choke the life even out of our hobbies and passions because we make them more than they were designed to be. They were made and given to us for pleasure, for fun, for refreshment, for restoration. But instead, they're just another place that I need to prove myself because I've attached my identity to them. And all of this happens so subtly and it sucks the life and the joy out of life itself. It takes place so naturally even. We can catch ourselves saying things like, if I have that, just that, Anything from that pair of shoes to that person's respect, from a significant other to a house in that neighborhood, if I have that, if I get what I wish for, then and only then, oh, that'll be it. That's the end of my list, and then I'll be good. When we catch ourselves in those moments thinking those things, we have to stop and recognize that the thing, we've made the thing, the wish, ultimately into a savior, Expecting that it will rescue us from our discontentment, hoping that it will rescue us from our unhappiness, hoping that it will rescue us from our insecurity or questions of significance. And those are empty shells, they're hollow inside, that have no life inside of them. If I could just walk again until it's something else. Again, quoting Keller, he said, it wasn't our deepish wish itself that was the problem, just as it wasn't wrong for the paralytic to want to walk or for a celebrity to want to succeed, or for someone to want to be loved or respected. The fact that we thought getting our deepest wish would heal us, that it would save us, that was the problem. We have to let Jesus alone be our savior. You see, I think that the healing in this story is miraculous, but I think there's a message in this story that's profoundly significant. There's only one way for our discontentment to be uprooted and removed, and it will not be via a genie in a bottle who can give me everything I'd wished or hoped for, any more than it would be a healer who could just touch and heal me. It would take a savior who loves me, who when he loved me, he willingly suffered and died for me, showing us just how significant and valuable we were to God freeing us not just from the penalty of our sin, but even from the the power and pattern of our sin, that pattern that's kept us trapped in this discontented cycle 
searching for some suitable savior. If I just get that, then it'll be good. It'll be enough. You see, it's a familiar story that we should slow down and consider the people involved, but we ought to also consider the message of that story. But then undoubtedly, there's an invitation in this story that we also need to wrap up with, and that's their faith. Not just the healing, the outrage, but we'll wrap up by talking about their faith in this story. You see, in verse 5, it tells us that Jesus saw their faith and then responded and said to the paralytic that your sins are forgiven you. In the end, though, Jesus went far beyond healing, remember, the, the paralyzed man. He also forgave him. So we can safely assume, I believe, that Jesus isn't just looking at his four friends and seeing their faith choosing to forgive this man. This man must have had faith in his own heart that Jesus could see exemplified in his face as his expression shifted as he looked the direction of Jesus towards hope again. Jesus saw their collective faith and responded because this man seemed equally determined that he would get to Jesus, but he would need the help of his faithful and faith-filled friends to get there. In his book, The Miracles of Christ, author David A. Redding, he said it this way. He says, our faith is often so fragile that it looks for the slightest excuse to give up. Fairweather Christians are frightened away at the first sign of rain. When they saw that the house was packed, they didn't stop and, and start an argument. When they were pushed away from the door and, and knew that they were forced to stop again, they didn't stop in self-pity Again, quoting from this same book, The Miracles of Christ, the author said, They defied the door, tore through the clay-covered saplings of Peter's roof, and lowered their burden of grief down through the opening to get the master's attention. Faith found the opening doubt could never have guessed was there. These men made clear forever afterward that faith is something more than just a stab in the right direction, It is a determined invasion. When's the last time you ran to Jesus with something? Determined that nothing could stop you. No one could stand in your way. When's the last time you lowered your burden of grief before him? A person, a heartache, a hope. I think there's an invitation in this story to do that very thing. Two weeks ago, as I was looking ahead at this story, I was reminded of the story, and maybe you've heard this story, of Sir Nicholas Winton. His story takes place in the Second World War. It was, as 1938 was coming to a close, that Europe was on the brink of war, and violence towards Jews was escalating, and an agreement was signed that would allow Hitler's troops to march into Czechoslovakia unstopped, essentially leaving some 300,000 Jews in what would quickly become a life-or-death situation. By 1941, many were forced from their homes and communities into ghettos and then later into concentration camps in different parts of the country. Of the 88,202 Jewish people who were forced to move to the east, eventually into concentration camps, only 2,000 of them and change escaped or remained alive until Soviet troops liberated them in 1945. By the end of the Second World War, just 14,000 Jews remained alive in the German-occupied Czechoslovakia. That's down from over 300,000. The Smithsonian Institution, uh, they report that 263,000 Czechoslovakian Jews were murdered by the Nazis, leaving the rest unaccounted for or having displaced them outside of the country. 
It was terrible what happened, but hit rewind and go back to 1939, where shortly after that worrisome agreement was signed that would allow Hitler and his troops to move into Czechoslovakia, there was a young 29-year-old banker by the name of Nicholas Winton. Nicky is what his friends called him. He had no idea just how dire the situation would become for the Jews who lived in Czechoslovakia. But, but after he spent a two-week vacation in Prague with a friend at a friend's invitation, foregoing his ski vacation that he had already planned, <coughs> Winton saw a humanitarian crisis that would soon reach a boiling point in that country. And with the conviction that this was a life-threatening situation for Jews in the country, Nicky would then pull a group of his friends together, even his own mother, who would become the bookkeeper in this group of people. And he would do, he was determined to do whatever it would take to remove young Jewish children from harm's way as the Nazi regime would move into Czechoslovakia. As word got out of his plan to families who lived in and around Prague, people lined the streets in order to have the opportunity for their children to be legally removed from this potential war zone, in order to be relocated predominantly in Great Britain out of harm's way. His motto, Nicky Winton, is that if something is not impossible, then there must be a way to do it. And it led him to follow his convictions and undertake an operation that others dismissed as, this is unnecessary, come on. Or this is just too difficult, it's too complex. But young Nicky would find a foster home for each vulnerable child in need, and a 50-pound guarantee that each host family was required by law to provide, that 50-pound that guarantee guaranteed that at the end of the war, the child would be shipped back to their family. Not to mention the fees involved in transporting them out of the country, which he raised, and when he couldn't raise it all, he used his own bank accounts to fund this mission. Soon in the story, exhausted children would flood all the train stations throughout England as they'd show up wearing simple name tags around their necks, just a simple form of identification. And one by one, English foster parents would collect those refugee children and take them into their homes, keeping them safe from the war and the genocide that was about to consume their families back in Czechoslovakia. Winton, who gave these children the gift of life, was told in the stories to stand at the train station afar off, watching from a distance all of this take place. Winton, one of the unsung heroes of World War II, is now known as the Schindler of Britain and is still revered as the father who saved scores of his children, they call him, from Nazi death camps. New York Times reported, they say it this way, nearly all the saved children were orphans by war's end. Their parents were killed at Auschwitz or other concentration camps. After the war, many would remain in Britain, but others returned to Czechoslovakia or immigrated to Israel or, or even the United States or Australia. The survivors, many now in their 70s and 80s, still refer to themselves as Winton's children. Winton rescued 669 Czech children from their doomed fate in Nazi death camps. But the crazy thing is, his achievement went unnoticed or unheralded for nearly 50 years. For 50 years, these kids who were rescued had no idea who was responsible for it. The story of Nicky Winton only emerged after his wife, who he married sometime after the war, found in their attic an old leather briefcase, and inside were the dusty record of names and pictures and documents detailing the stories of redemption from the Holocaust. It was then that the now aged Mr. Winton spoke of this all-but-forgotten work that he accomplished as a young man 50 years beforehand in the deliverance of these children who, like their parents who gave them up to save their lives, these children were destined for Nazi camps, concentration camps and extermination. 
1988, when the story broke and it became more publicized, a, a little old, frail man named Nicky Winton was brought into a live studio audience to be honored for his care for these vulnerable children. Old Nicky Winton had no way of knowing that the studio audience that surrounded him was a guest list generated from the list that his wife found in their attic. The crowd that sat with him were all people who had never been given the opportunity to thank the mystery man in the suit at the train station. The one who had rescued and saved their lives as young children. And now is their moment to share their name and embrace and even the name tags that they had held onto for 50 years with the one that loved them and gave a way of escape for them. 669 children. It's crazy, here at Painted Rock, their current enrollment is 624 students. Can you imagine an entire school rescued because of someone's selfless act? My friends, we are nobody's savior. But we, like Nikki Winton, know of certain destruction that's inevitable. We know there's judgment day that's coming. And we know long before that day, there's emptiness involved in chasing phantom saviors in every direction. We know the only true savior, Jesus, our substitute and sacrifice. And I don't know that we'll have a moment kind of like Nikki Winton did, where we'll be in heaven and where there will be a moment where someone will say, would all of you stand who are touched because of the actions of this person? Where we can look around and see the impact of our prayers and our selfless service of others. I don't know that we'll have a moment like that. Whether we do or don't though, I want to be like this man's friends in Mark's gospel. Where they're determined, I'm gonna let nothing stop me from getting my friend to Jesus because they're convinced that Jesus alone could make him whole again. My friends, there's a message here and an invitation, and it's don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, you'll reap a reward if you don't give up. We may never know this side of heaven, the impact that we're having on someone's life, but don't lose heart. Their story's not done yet, nor is your role in their life. Pray for your prodigal. Sit patiently with that friend that found themselves in a mess again. Love your neighbor and don't give up. Listen, we're not trying to win them over to our side any more than we're trying to sell them a timeshare. We're introducing them to Jesus, a person, a loving savior. We just want to walk them to the train station where the door is open to them. We want to lower them through the roof to the one who can rescue them. I'm gonna close just with this challenge. Uh, and this challenge is a contrast to this story. And I want to use a familiar biblical story and give me a little bit of poetic license, if you will, to do that. But do you remember the story of Jesus when he arrived at the funeral of his friend? Do you remember Lazarus? Do you remember it's his sisters who had called for Jesus in John's gospel? It's John 11. When they called for him, they, they told him, we need you to come, Jesus, because he's sick and it's not good. And they were, they were waiting. They were wanting they were believing that Jesus would meet their need and heal their brother. But Jesus delayed in the story. And because he delayed, terrible suffering and sorrow ensued because the man lost his battle with his illness. And those who loved him had to suffer with him as they watched him lose that battle. 
But then when Jesus arrived, do you remember what his one request was? Do you remember? It tells you in John's gospel, chapter 11, it says, Therefore, when Jesus saw them weeping, and the Jews who came with them weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said, Come and see. And Jesus wept, it says. Where'd you bury it? When'd you stop believing that he's good and that he's going to show up? I'm convinced that we get an invitation when it comes to Jesus to either carry our burdens to him or just to bury him because of sorrow. That maybe, maybe the thing that, that you've buried is the hope of a relationship. And Jesus today would say, well, would you carry that back my direction again? And he's not disappointed that you've buried it, the idea, or, or maybe you've buried it and moved on and, and, and you're looking for, for maybe a plan B and trying to make something else happen. He's not disappointed or annoyed. He's weeping with them in the story, saying, where did you bury it? Let's walk there. It's your battle maybe with infertility. And today he would just say, where did you bury it? When did you stop believing? Where was the moment in time where you, you stopped believing that I was good or that I'd show up, that I could do this? Rather than bringing it to me again, you just felt like I brought it enough and I'm done. I tried the door, it was closed. I looked at the roof, it was firm. There were tiles, it's just not worth the effort because there's no guarantee on, on return on this investment of my time and of my heart any longer to hope and to believe and to pray. Where'd you bury the, the hope for healing and growth, for restoration in your marriage? Because I think Jesus takes you by the hand today and says, would you walk me to that place? The moment in time where you stop believing, let's stand there together and he'll weep with you, but then say, would you carry it my direction? What about your hope and, and you buried your belief and, and that person being restored or in the return of that prodigal coming home? He isn't angry in the story he's weeping with them. I think that you and I get to hear Jesus' voice saying to us today, where did you bury it? Take me to the, the place, the moment in time that you stop believing that I'm good or that I'm coming. Because my friends, I'm convinced that that's what we get invited in scripture to do is either to carry our burdens to Jesus as he invites us to, or we can bury them before he's given the time he needs to arrive. Carry and lower your burden of grief, his direction. As Peter says, cast all of your cares upon him, knowing that he cares about what happens to you. There's an invitation here for us. Lower that burden of grief. Don't bury it. Believe that he's good and that he's going to arrive. And so Jesus, for each of us, those can look like different things that, that lay on that humble bed that needs to be lowered your direction today. What we want, though, is for us to share a common confidence in your ability to handle those things and in your heart that cares about those things. Jesus, sometimes things in life are so very difficult. They're so hard. But God, we don't want to just bury those things. We want to hang on to them and bring them your direction. Bring them believing that you can breathe life into them again. And so, Jesus, I, I don't know what that looks like in each person's life that's present here. 
that lives in the tension of do I carry it or bury it today? But God, you know, and I believe that you can right now take them by the hand and lead them to that thing. Lead them to that moment where they stopped believing and placed it on the ground. Today we choose to pick up those burdens and bring them your direction, casting all of our cares on you, knowing that you care about what happens to us. And Jesus, I believe that with confidence because a cross proved the depths of your love for me. You took my sin, my shame upon yourself and suffered and died for me and once and for all proved to me just how much you loved me. And so Jesus, we reflect not just on the thing to carry your direction, but on you, the one who beckons us to do it, a one who loved us, the one who gave himself for us. In Jesus' name, amen.